afternoon, everybody. Migration from Islamic countries in Europe has become a major problem. The emergence of parallel societies, major cultural problems at schools, and problems with the increasing violence against women and also in general. And of course, not just since October 7th, we have observed an increase in Jew hatred in Europe, in our main capitals and everywhere. In Europe, political Islam has become a very serious problem. The goal of this lecture is to provide knowledge of the basic Islamic teachings which enables us to perceive their impact on politics and society and to respond accordingly. The first part is political Islam and its content according to the Islamic texts. If we go in the debate about Islam, the people always say, but Islam is not Islam. There are many different branches. Yes, of course. The main part of the Islamic community belongs to the Sunnis. Here you can see the law schools of the Sunni Islam. Here you can see the law schools of the Shiite Islam. But now we go to the very foundation of Islam. The very foundation of Islam is the Islamic creed. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. If you speak this in Arabic in front of two Islamic testimonies, you are converted to Islam. But for us non-Muslims, it shows us the only two authorities in Islam, for Islam. And this is Allah and everything about Allah we find in Quran. <coughs> and less known is the texts about Muhammad his Sunnah, his biography, the Sirah, and the traditions, the Hadith. What you see here is the whole amount of texts of Islam. If you reduce the Quran with all the doubles, it's 14% of the teachings of Islam is the Quran. 68% are the texts about Muhammad. Uh, the Sira, the biography of Ibn Ishaq, was written 150 to 200 years after Muhammad's death. It's 800 pages. I request you to read it because it's enlightening if you know Muhammad's life. And the Hadith are 700,000 little stories about every deed, everything what Muhammad did from every day's life up to waging war. And 7,000 from these stories about Muhammad are declared as sahih, as reliable. And of course, for our research, we use the collections which are reliable. I want just to mention some of them. Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, and Sahih Abu Dawud. So that's mainly the collections we use for, for the research. Um, unique in these texts is that more than half of these texts are dealing with the non-Muslims. How the non-Muslims, the so-called kafir, should be, uh, should be treated according to the Islamic teachings. We never speak about the people, about the individuals, or about Muslims. We always turn to the primarily Islamic texts, just to make sure. Yeah. So 51% 
of the Islamic texts are dealing with the non-Muslims, and this is the part which is for us political. So we are uh, debating this topic on a political level, and we are speaking about political Islam. Let's turn to the Quran from the Islamic point of view. It's complete, perfect, and immutable for all times. I don't know who of you already have read the Quran. If you read it, then you will see the surahs. They are not in chronological order. They are ordered lengthwise, as you can see on the graph here. The surahs given in Mecca and the surahs given in Medina and how they are the order of the chapters at the bottom. That's why there is missing the, the, the context. To understand the context of the surahs in the Quran, you need to understand Muhammad's life. There are missing the instructions. So everybody knows the five pillars of Islam, how to pray, how to fast, how to do the pilgrimage to Mecca, how to pay the jizya, ah, the, the, the um, zakat, the, the tax. So um, to, apply, to, do, to know how to do that, you need the texts about Muhammad. You will not find the instructions in the Quran. And in the Quran, you find a lot of contradicting messages. I will come to that later because this is the we call it dualism in Quran and in Muhammad's life. But there is a key to understand all this. It's 89 surahs telling us that Muhammad is the best rule model for everybody. There has certainly been for you in the Messenger of Allah an excellent pattern for anyone. Don't worry, I will only give you one example, not 89. But just to understand, Muhammad is the one who gives us a detailed interpretation of the Quran. Also the legal sources in Islam by priority is Allah and Muhammad, the Quran and Muhammad's Sunnah. Uh, all the Islamic authorities, if they decide something, at the end they turn to Quran and Sunnah of Muhammad to make their decisions. It's the legal priority, uh, the legal source by priority. According to the Islamic teachings, all prophets, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and even Jesus, who is called Isa in the Quran, they were all Islamic and preaching Islam. And that's how the allegations of falsified texts against the Jews and Christians came up. But those who wronged changed those words to a statement other than that which had been said to them. So we sent down upon those who wronged the punishment from the sky because they were defiantly disobedient. Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. He's the last in the row. He brought back everything to Islam. What he said is valid for eternity. A short example from the curriculum of Islamic religious education in Austria, if you find Muhammad, you find 27 points. So he's for everyday life, exemplary, he's uh, an exemplary human being. And in this topic circle, the students once again deal intensively with the history of the prophet as a special rule model figure and discuss different phases of his life. Let's go into the life of Muhammad. Nevertheless, there is no archaeological and no historical proof if Muhammad existed or not. But as he is exemplary for the whole mankind, we go in the text now. Everything what you see in the next few slides, it's according to the primarily Islamic texts, Quran and Sunnah of Muhammad. 
And to make it easier for you, I will give you an overview. Keep in mind these three periods of Muhammad's life. When he was born in Mecca and when he grew up and after his migration, his Islamic hijra from Mecca to Medina, when he became a politician, we can say, and the third uh, period of his life, the conquest of Mecca until his death. Keep it in mind. Um, and now a brief summary of Muhammad's life. Muhammad, according to the Islamic texts. Muhammad was born 570 in Mecca. Mecca was a polytheistic environment. There were very few Jews and Christians. It was polytheistic. The biggest tribe was the Quraysh, and they worshipped three gods. Muhammad grew up as an orphan with his uncle Abu, Abu Talib and became a businessman. And that's how he met Khadija, and it was Khadija, a successful businesswoman, woman who um, proposed him the marriage. That's how Muhammad uh, became wealthy and influential. In that time, the first surahs, visions, were sent down by angel Gibral, and Muhammad started to preach the faith to one God, and with that he got problems in Mecca, because Mecca was polytheistic. After the death of his wife Khadija and his uncle Abu Talib, uh, the Abu Talib, he was a Quraysh, but he was a bit like a mediator in between the Meccans and Mohammed. When, the, when those two died, uh, the problems were increasing and it got worse for Mohammed. In that time it was said that he, was, he married the six-year-old Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr, the later caliph. And in this time, also the story was sent down that Muhammad flew on a, at night on a flying horse to Jerusalem and he had insight in heaven and hell. And I mention that because this story has great significance again today. Why? Because among other things, it describes Islam's claim to ownership of Jerusalem. In this time, the satanic verses were sent down. In the Sirah it is explained what it means. Muhammad always was thinking of ways how to persuade the Meccans to accept Islam. It came to him that the three gods of the Quraysh could intercede with Allah. The Meccans, they liked this um, possibility and it came even to some common worship around the Kaaba. But later, Muhammad said that he received these surahs by Satan. So there was no bridge between Islam and the religion of the Meccans anymore. And it came at the end to the Islamic migration, to the Islamic hijra from Mecca to Medina. This is the beginning of the Islamic calendar, not the revelation of the first surahs, not his birth. It was the Islamic migration from Mecca to Medina, and that's how uh, Muhammad changed. In the first 13 years, he persuaded 150 people, and then Muhammad became a politician, a lawmaker, and in a very short time period, he, he conquered the, 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 um, the environment where he lived. And he became a politician and a jihadi, and his strategy and tactics changed. What happened in Medina? Medina was very different to Mecca. 
the first thing was what Mohammed did, he built up the first mosque. And the mosque also served military purposes. He consummated the marriage with Aisha when she was nine, he was 53. And <coughs> maybe you are familiar with the narrative that Islam only wages war in defense. You have heard of that, I guess. This goes back to this period in Medina, because the Meccans did not accept Muhammad. They did not uh, accept him as a prophet. And not accepting, not submitting under Muhammad and Allah is, according to the Islamic text, it's a crime. So it was, um, it was possible for Muhammad to start the raids on the trade caravans. It came to the very famous Battle of Badr, 624. Nevertheless, the Islamic armies were a minority. They won this battle. And how important, these are like time markers. These are events are very important. Uh, this shows, for example, that in Afghanistan, there is a special force called Badr 313. Medina was very different to Mecca. There were many Jews. More than half of the population was Jewish. There were three big Jewish tribes, Banu Kanuka, Banu Nadir, and Banu Kuraitza. And we cannot go in detail now, but in this time, and this time of the Medinan Quran reveals all the texts of Jew hatred, which are still important today, and especially today they are important. So the Jews did neither accept Muhammad as, as prophet, nor did they support him in the raids against the other Arab tribes. So this was the reason why one after the other tribe was besieged and expelled. And we, should, we can't do that today because we don't have the time, but we should study these processes of the expulsions closely because they are still considered exemplary today. Mohammed signed the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, which was a settlement for a truce. And, he, and this treaty, Al-Hudaybiyah, established Islam's attitude about treaties to this day. Political Islam makes a treaty if and only if it is in a weak position. The treaty is good as long as political Islam is weak. We have one example, Yasser Arafat justified the Oslo Treaty in the 90s with this Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. Many Jews fled from Mecca and Medina in the direction of Syria and they, they stayed at the Jewish oasis of Kaiba. Please remember the word Kaiba, because Kaiba is the synonym over the victory over the Jews. I don't know how it is here, but in Europe we hear this war shout, Kaiba, Kaiba, Ochu, Mohammed's army will come back. We hear it a lot on the um, manifestations for Palestina, and this goes back to this story, the synonym for the victory over the Jews. And if you see on the right hand, you can see Ishak 747. This is always the quote. You can go in the Sira of Ibn Ishak and read in the chapter 747 and the following how it took place. Just a short summation, the leader was killed, a Jew was tortured on Mohammed's order to tell the location of a Jewish treasure, then he was beheaded. 
Mohammed took Safiya, the widow of the Jew, and married her. I just want to stop here for a moment because according to the Islamic teachings, Kafir women, non-Islamic women, are seen as spoils of war. And Safiya, she was a Jewish woman, she was the spoil of war and she belonged to a follower of Muhammad. And he heard that she was really beautiful, so he bought her for some slaves and uh, then he married her. So first he killed brother, husband, father and family in jihad and later he married her. And why did the followers see that she was his wife and she, he married her? She could have been a sex slave as well, but she had to wear a veil. And the veil is the distinguishing mark of Islamic women, Mohammed's women, and Kafir women, who are considered as sexually available. In Kaiba, Mohammed installed the first dhimis. Dimis, maybe you have heard this term, dimis are second-class citizens or semi-slaves. And in Kaiba, it, it was the Jews, they worked the land and gave half of the income each year to Mohammed. They could still be Jews, but they gave up all their power. This shows Islamic tolerance of other religions. And later, the the, dimi, the tool to have dimis is one of the most important tools for the spread of political Islam, which we will see in the history. Mohammed conquered Mecca two years after he signed the 10-year Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, and all the idols around the Kaaba were destroyed, and those who resisted were killed. There is a whole list in Ibn Ishaq 810, there were slave girls who had sung satirical songs against Mohammed, a transcriber, and others. And in this time, the Islamic warriors, they asked themselves what to do with the captured women, because they asked Mohammed, can we have sexual intercourse with them? Because they are married in their own cultures, and adultery is a big sin, according to the Islamic teachings. So that was the reason why in this time, and you see here there are several surahs in the Quran and many hadiths which allow that captured women can be raped. Kafir women are spoils of war. <coughs> Later, Muhammad sent warriors, Khalid ibn al-Walid, you can look at it, it's the sword of Allah to conquest, and he commanded in this day reached more Christian regions. And that's why in this time the Surah 929 was sent down the submission of the Christians and the Jews. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger. This is a link to the Islamic law, to the Sharia. Nor acknowledge the religion of the truth, Islam, even if they are of the people of the book until they obey the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. I give you another quote from the Sirah of Ibn Ishaq, chapter 973. In a nine-year period, Mohammed personally took part in 27 raids. There were 38 other battles and expeditions. 
This is a total of 65 armed events, not including assassinations and executions, for an average one armed event every six weeks. When Muhammad said he, when Muhammad died, he said, this is the Hadith al-Bukhari, if you see the quotes like that, you look in volume four, book 52, Hadith 288. Muhammad said, there should be no religion in Arabia except Islam, and that money should continue to be paid to influence the Kafir ambassadors from abroad, the non-Islamic ambassadors from abroad. Um, this refers to the jihad of the money, and maybe you are familiar that the vice president of the European Parliament, not a long ago, she got a lot of money from Qatar and Morocco to make it easier to get a visa. So, and I will give you another quote. This is a quote of Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, 1928 in Egypt. He said, when they tell you there is politics, tell them that this is Islam and we do not know the separation of religion and politics. Yeah, Islam is a hybrid society system with religion, with ethics, with law, with politics, with, ev with everything. And we, non-Muslims, we can go into debate on a political level and that's what is very helpful because we don't want to harm any spiritual feelings of anybody. This shows Islamic colonialization. North Africa was Christian. Parts of Arabian was Christian. Iran was Zoroastrian. Afghanistan was Buddhist. Pakistan was Hinduist. A characteristic of political Islam is that earlier civilizations are being displaced. And it continued for 1,400 years. There's Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman and Ali, the four right-guided caliphs. Under Abu Bakr, there were the Ridder Wars. Many people wanted to leave Islam because Muhammad died. But I'm sure that you know there is the death penalty for apostasy. So this was executed a lot in this time. That's why political Islam could spread. And then there are the caliphs of the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and the caliphs of the Ottomans until 1924. And I will show you how it continues. According to the Islamic teaching, the whole world belongs to the Islamic Ummah, to the Islamic community. Political Islam outlines the concept of uh, territory separation. Countries under Islamic rule are called Dar al-Islam or Houseland of Islam, and countries that are not under Islamic rule are called Dar al-Hab or Houseland of War, according to the Sharia Code. They are also called Land of the Enemy. This is not a country with borders or a state. These are regions where political Islam has taken the power. Um, I'm sure that you have heard that in Europe we are dealing with no-go areas or sans sensible or, or in, in Paris. Yeah? We have these areas where the police has doesn't, enter, doesn't enter anymore. And these are regions where political Islam has taken over all the power. And from these um, centers, political Islam is increasing and spreading. Also in Austria and in Germany, we have some areas which are critical at the moment. This is a demographic 
map. Usually we do not point to the people, we do not point mainly to individuals, but demography is a tool of political Islam. And why I show this map here is because we are in an institute which is dealing with national security. And it shows the centers of the crisis of the world. It shows North Africa, Somalia, Ethiopia, the Middle East, Armenia, Kashmir, the Balkan states. You can see that uh, if we do not study the Islamic textbook, we will never achieve to find solution for the center of the crisis in the whole world. That's why I wanted to show this map. Let's go into the uh, principles of the Islamic ethics according to the textbook, according to the Islamic basic primarily texts. The goal of political Islam is submission. Islam means submission under Muhammad and Allah. It is he who has sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of the truth to proclaim it all over all religion, even so the pagans may detest it. There is a strategy for that. It's waging jihad and implementing step by step the Sharia, the Islamic law. The second caliph after Mohammed's death established the Treaty of Umar, Shurut Umar. Dimis, Jews and Christians under Islamic rule have to pay the jizya tax, are not allowed to build new monasteries and churches, have always to give food and accommodations for Muslims, are not allowed to manifest their religion in public, have to wear recognizable clothing, are not allowed to carry weapons, they are not allowed to possess weapons, do not sell alcohol, no criticism of Muhammad, my colleague will take over this important topic, there is a prohibition to teach the Quran to non-Islamic children. The homes of non-Muslims must not be higher than the homes of Muslims. Dimis are not allowed to ride on horses, only on donkeys. This is an institutional, institutionalized discrimination of non-Muslims, which is leading to the step-by-step -step conversion. And according to the strengths of political Islam in the region, the discrimination was higher or not so high. Let's go into the history. Uh, ten years after Muhammad's death, uh, Egypt was conquered by Islam. 10,000 uh, people conquered Egypt. It was a late antique society of one million people there. And of course, at the beginning, the discrimination was not so high. And this is what in our school textbooks sometimes they describe it as the golden age of Islam, the peaceful living together coexistence. But if you go a little bit deeper in that, if you do research on that, then you will see that it was the dhimmis who were living under Islamic rule and that the discrimination was increasing as soon as political Islam has gained power. Also, in the Holy Land, in Israel, it was a Christian population under <coughs> Islamic rule. The Christians, thousand past Christ, there was Al-Hakim, the Caliph Al-Hakim. The Christians could not longer visit the holy places. They were subjected to constant looting, kidnapping with ransom payments. And Caliph Al-Hakim, he destroyed 30,000 churches and it was a 
really bad Christian persecution until Emperor Alexius Komnenos issued a call for help to Rome and the European Christians came, have come to the aid of the Oriental Christians. We all know that this was the beginning of the Crusades in 1099 and for 200 years they could stabilize this country and then it fell. Listen to uh, Middle East Media Research Institute. They translate speeches of uh, Islamic leaders. And this is a sheikh in Israel in June uh, 2019. Uh -huh. it, there is no sound. <laughs> yeah. But you can read, maybe. <laughs> I have some other videos. I think this one is, was fine to, to read it. Everybody could understand it, but maybe we... Yeah. This map shows 548 military jihad battles in the, against the classic civilizations of Rome and Greece. In this time, it was violent jihad, and political Islam was always pushed back with war of course now at the beginning of the 20th century political islam did not enter non-islamic countries with violent jihad anymore that's why also the response the resistance has to be ideologically like thomas jefferson did it it was thomas jefferson who was a diplomatic representative from, of america in paris at that time he was not yet president and he was able to stop piracy in the Mediterranean Sea. He wondered why piracy did not stop, even so America was spending 20% of the state income as protection taxes. So he met the Islamic ambassador in Tripoli, who informed him that the Quran commands fighting against no the Kafirs, against the non-Muslims. That's why Thomas Jefferson studied the Quran. This Quran of Thomas Jefferson still exists in the US, I don't know where, with a preface, wonderful preface of Tom Thomas Jefferson. And this is considered to be the founding, the founding moment of the US Navy as we know it today. Piracy was stopped in the two Barbary Wars. Let's do it like Thomas Jefferson. I already mentioned in the, at the beginning of the 20th century, political Islam was weak. It was not a danger anymore. The West could, could resist. And, but if you study political Islam's textbook, you will see that there are other strategies and tactics to enter non-Islamic countries. 
And one of these tactics is Islamic migration, which we are confronted with in Europe a lot, and also trade, for example. And it is a matter of priority once political Islam enters a Kafir country to establish the political infrastructure. This is important because Islamic organizations become the authority on knowledge and define the strategy and tactics of subverting the existing Kafir constitutional order. I will show here the growth of Islamic organizations in Germany. Why does it grow so quickly in the last decades? Because there is no resistance, nobody knows uh, how to handle it. The seat of the political Islamic power centers are the mosques. Muhammad's life outlines these functions. US. It's in all the countries, nevertheless, which constitution they have, it's the same. Political Islam has always the same strategy and tactics. Sorry, are these organizations or populations? These are organizations. We d that's what I really want to mention. We do not point to the people because we are open for all the peoples, for all the individuals. We point to the organizations which take over these functions. And we always go back to the Islamic primarily texts. And for example, the function of a mosque, according to the research in Quran, Sira, and Hadith, the function of a mosque, according to these papers, is a court for trials, verdicts, and legal decrees, a place to carry out legal sentence, also such as stoning, a place for family law, a place to receive foreign diplomats, a war chamber, and weapons are also permitted in a mosque. So the next video, now we have a little problem because, ah no, it's also in English here. So this is a, a video, a recent video from Israel now. Maybe you can look if we can get the sound. Now we come to the kafirs. There are more than 300 references to the kafir in the Quran. Kafirs are those who conceal the truth. Kafirs are the non-Muslims, and it's not a neutral term. Indeed, the worst of living creatures in the sight of Allah are those who have disbelieved and they will not ever believe. 
Cursed, wherever they are found, they shall be seized and murdered. Kafirs, according to the Quran, can be mocked. Kafirs are hated, can be terrorized, can be beheaded, can be plotted against. Kafirs must not be befriended. There are certain surahs pointing that out. Kafirs are evil, can be humiliated, can be cursed, and can be persecuted. This is the doctrine. There is a strategy for the spread of political Islam. It's jihad. Jihad means struggle, effort. Every single deed in daily life can be used for jihad. And <coughs> Mohammed's biography outlines that. As you see here, two-thirds of Mohammed's biography is about jihad. If you go to dialogue events. I don't know if this exists here as it exists in Europe, but if you go there, then we, you will hear the greater jihad, the inner spiritual jihad, to get up in the morning uh, quickly and to, to be nice to the children and things like that. It's the spiritual jihad. And the statistical analysis of the Hadith al-Bukhari said that it's 2% and the lesser jihad, which is in the case the violent jihad against the non-Muslims, it's 98%. But these terms are not according to the primarily doctrine. They were the first time they appeared in the 11th, in the 11th century and they were mainly used for Sufism. But I mention it because it's used so much. But according to the Islamic texts, there is the jihad of the pen and the word, so treaties, school books, articles, um, Jihad of the money, unluckily we can't go into that um, in depth, but it's a very important topic. Jihad of the sword, of the violence, and also Islamic migration is jihad according to the texts. There is a motivation for jihad, for the hijra. Believers who participate in jihad increase their rank. Those who fight with their wealth and their lives for Allah's cause. The reward for jihad. The participation in jihad means the direct path to paradise and all the previous bad deeds are erased. So those who immigrated or were evicted from their homes, this is the narrative of being evicted. Why? Because the whole world belongs to the Islamic Ummah. Or were harmed in my cause or fought or were killed, I will surely remove from them their misdeeds and so on and they get it big reward in heaven. Jihad is the most important deed and you did not kill them but it was Allah who killed them and you did not through O Muhammad when you threw but it was Allah who threw. Fighting is prescribed for you and you dislike it but it is possible that you dislike a thing which is good for you and that you love a thing which is bad for you. These two surahs show something very important. There's no free will, no decision of the own conscience in the Islamic teachings. Um, there is the principle of al-bala wal-bara. Everything what Allah likes is good and everything what Allah dislikes is bad. That's it. And we have to learn uh, how jihad is applied <coughs> in our societies and it's exactly according to Muhammad's life. When political Islam is weak, it's the same than in the Meccan period. When it gains power, it's in the Medinan period. And when it has the upper hand, it's the conquest of Mecca. Let's go into that a bit. 
Uh, when political Islam is weak, we listen to the message of the peace. For you is your religion and for me is my religion. Those of you who have attended dialogue events know this surah. And, but we know from the seerah, from Mohammed's biography, that while Mohammed gained for tolerance for Islam in the public, behind closed doors he promises his followers already the dominion over the others and uh, Arab tribes and non-Arabs. There is a big difference if you go to a dialogue event in the parish or in the diocese or if you go in a hidden mosque in Vienna. So you will listen to both of that. This is applied. Jihad in the media. This is the leader of an Islamic community. He attaches great importance to mercy towards all human beings, the absolute justice, the equality of woman and man, the separation of religion and state, an end to violence against the na uh, in the name of religion and to human rights as laid down in the Quran. That's exactly what we want to hear and we get it. It's an announce, announce in the newspaper. School classes are invited in mosques. And you can always look the name of the mosque. This mosque is called Fatih Mosque, and Fatih was the conqueror of Constantinople in 1453. And there is a kebab stand in Berlin, in Germany, at the station, which is called Fatih Servet, which means something like luck to the conqueror. We did an analyze of the school textbooks. And this is a school textbook for 12-year-old children, a history book for 12-year-old children in Austria, a recent one. Mohammed began to preach. He proclaimed that all men were equal, that the slaves had to be freed, and that one had to share his wealth with the poor. With this, he made enemies, and he had to immigrate from Mecca in 622. Finally, he gained so many followers that he could return to Mecca. After his death, Islam continued to spread. Why does it happen like that? Because this is not an Islamic schoolbook. This is a schoolbook which was written by Kafirs, non-Islamic people. But, as I said, the matter of priority is to establish the Islamic authority in the country. And if we non-Muslims want to know something, we turn to this authority. We should not turn to the authorities. We should turn to the primarily texts, to the textbook, because then we could understand what happens. In the second period of jihad, Mohammed migrated from Mecca to Medina, and you already know what happened. So slay them wherever you find them, drive them out from the places whence they drove you out, for persecution is worse than slaughter. We have to learn the language of political Islam, because there are similar terms but other definitions. And for example, persecution, according to the Islamic teachings, is the secular society order, or Christianity. This, this would be Islam, uh, oppression of Islamic teachings. In this phase there is an emphasis on the victim rule. There, the politicians are influenced a lot. This is called Dava, the invitation to Islam, demands for halal prayer rooms and times, and the, the uh, activity against Islamophobia. My colleague will go into that a little bit more that's happened in Vienna. This is the, the, fu the function of a mosque. Of course, it was a, uh, everybody was 
was shocked about these pictures, but it is the function of a, of a mosque to educate the children how history, war, everything. And when political Islam has the upper hand, uh, we know that what happens is Afghanistan, Pakistan, and a really good example is 1979, the revolution in Iran. Then, when the sacred months have passed, slay the idolaters wherever you find them and take them captive and besiege them and prepare for them each ambush. They fight in the cause of Allah, so they kill and are killed. And you who have believed, fight those adjacent to you of the disbelievers and let them find in you harshness. Yeah, there are many surahs, I can't give you a lot, but if you want more, yeah. go in the self-studies. These figures are a rough estimate of death of kafirs by the political act of jihad found in Quran, Sirah and Hadith in 1400 years. When Mohammed conquered from Medina, Mecca, around the Kaaba there were 360 idols, and all these idols were destroyed. And the destruction of pre-Islamic culture or of non-Islamic culture is doctrine in the political Islamic teachings. Also the previous cultures are destroyed. Go to do your own research about that. I already spoke about the contradiction in Quran and also in the life of Muhammad. Um, it's like an ethical dualism and this makes it very difficult for us to understand the doctrine. There is, for you is your religion and for me is my religion and accursed wherever they are found being seized and massacred completely. So what is true? Both is true. Both is Islamic doctrine, both can be applied and of course, depending on the power of political Islam in a region, one verse or the other applies. And Quran solved this problem by itself. There is the law of abrogation. So the later verse, the Medinan verse, counts more or is more important than the earlier verse. It's called the law of abrogation, which is difficult to evaluate because the surahs are not ordered chronologically. Um, maybe you are familiar that deception is allowed for the spread of political Islam. In the Islamic teachings there are a lot of words for deception. There is the Takiyah, Al-Marid and also Kitman. Kitman is um, putting away one part of a surah. This surah 532 is very famous. Whoever kills a human being killed all men and whoever keeps it alive it is as if he keeps all men alive. This surah is the headline of a declaration against violence and terror in, in Austria, which was signed by 300 imams. This surah is part of the Abu Dhabi declaration. Who is familiar with this declaration? It's the declaration of fraternity of Pope Francis with the chief of the Al-Azhar University, Al-Tayyab, in Egypt. And it's also part of this declaration. And the pictures you see here, this is the act of violent jihad in November 2020 in Austria and Vienna and it was in the Jewish district. So the, behind there, there are the Jerusalem stairs and it's very close to the, to the synagogue. 
And now we all together, we open the Quran and we read. For this reason, we have prescribed for the children of Israel. So this surah is directed to the Jews and it's a quote of the Talmud. Whoever kills a human being without committing murder or causing mischief on the earth, it is if he had killed all men and so on. Our messengers have already come to them with clear proofs. So the Jews were already invited to Islam. Dava was ongoing, they had clear proofs. But thereafter, many of them have truly remained on the earth without measure. They did not submit under Muhammad and Allah. That's why it came to the next surah. But the reward of those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and strive to do mischief in the earth is that they may all be killed or crucified or have their hands and feet cut off in turn or be banished from the land. This is a disgrace from them in this world and in the hereafter there is for them a mighty punishment. It's allowed deception. Mohammed said war is deception. The hypocrites wish to deceive Allah, but he will deceive them. And they schemed and Allah schemed and Allah is the best of schemers. As I already mentioned, we have to learn the definition of the same words. We have a lot of same words, but it's, a, it's not the same definition of the word. Justice. What does justice mean according to the Islamic teachings? It means that the Sharia is completely applied. Dignity, freedom and peace can only be under the rule of Islam. Uh, the free Syrian army is the free Islamic army. Democracy has a lot to do with democracy. Human rights, my colleague will go into that. Freedom of religion, what does it mean? It's the freedom to live Islam. It has nothing to do with leaving Islam or with uh, changing the religion. Oppression, tyranny and terror, this is the secular social order. Victim, only Muslims can be a victim. A non-Muslim is per se a perpetrator, even if he is a little baby or an old woman, not accepting Islam is being a perpetrator, is a crime. Charity, yeah, we can't open this topic here because charity in all the Islamic documents, beginning from the Quran and everything else, it's all, zakat is also used for the cause of Allah, which is jihad. It's a huge topic of Islamic financing. And I want to show you some misleading terms which are used a lot in Europe. Moderate Islam, radical Islam. We had a whole group who wanted to establish the Euro-Islam, Islamism, fundamentalist Islam, and many people say it's according to the interpretation. Yes, and we define it political, we define the part of the texts which are dealing with the non-Muslims, and we are talking about this topic on a political level. Um, I just want to... To, to point to this topic, I won't go into that now, but Christians who believe that Jesus is God are disbelievers. But those who insist that Christ is God and part of the Trinity and who reject the true faith will be punished in hell. Do your own research, go into the homepage of Open Doors. There are more than 365 million Christians in 50 predominantly Islamic countries persecuted at the moment. These are the very newest um, dates. 
I will not go into the topic of women. I just want to show that non-Islamic women, Kafir women, are seen as spoils of war. And this is one of the biggest justice and media scandals in Great Britain. In Rotherham alone, 1,400 Kafir girls from the age of 11 were systematically subjected to gang rape by Islamic perpetrators. In Germany, we have two gang rapes caused by Islamic perpetrators. In Austria, it's increasing. We have the term femicide now. So go and do your own research. We do not point to the um, motifs of the perpetrators. We connect it with the ideology of political Islam. The proportion of true hatred, I already mentioned it is in Medina, where the high percentage of Jewish population was. It's more than in Hitler's Mein Kampf. This is a quote from the Hadith, which is also in the founding charter of the Hamas. The messenger of Allah said, the last hour will not come until the Muslims fight the Jews and the Muslims shall kill them all. And if a Jew hides behind a stone or a tree, the stone or the tree will say aloud, O Muslim, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Remember Kaiba, the war shout. That's what happened in Vienna in 2021 and ongoing from the 7th of October in our streets. Kaiba, Kaiba, Ochu, Mohammed's army will come back. In the center of Vienna. And I will finish with this conference in Norway, and then I have a very last slide.
So our wishful thinking is the modernization of Islam, which was tried for many times in the 1,400 years. But why didn't, wh why wasn't it successful? What do you think? It's the authorities. The authority in Islam is Muhammad and Allah, and are the books, are the texts. This is the opening of a Friday ceremony. The best speech is the book of Allah, and the best guidance is the guidance of Muhammad, and the most evil thing is to renew it, and any renewal in religion is misguidance, and every misguidance leads to hellfire. Education is the only long-term protection. There are several books written by Dr. Bill Warner who studied and analyzed the primarily Islamic texts. They can help you to go in the self-study, but of course we, requ we uh, suggest to go into the primarily texts, go into Quran, go into the Sunnah and do your own research and make your own conclusions. Thank you very much. Are there any questions maybe now, or I don't know what is the. Um, yes, please. It's Mr. Yeah, right. Thank you for like, the mentioning about Takia, but what is the difference between Takia and, and other princes? So I, we remember Takia is currency. <laughs> so you are yeah. the expert. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are different terms. Almarid, Takia, Kitman, and uh, yeah. if you want, I can give you a whole paper on it that you can decide. So something is for, everything is for the spread of political Islam. Something is directed to the own community. And then, yes, but I, I, can, I can give you something about that. Yes, please. In the uh, hierarchy you mentioned of, um, I guess, the, the people respected to least respected by, uh, uh, I guess, members or uh, leaders of the Islamic faith, uh, talk fears were left out. And I was wondering whether that was, was talk fear, talk fearism. Mm -hmm. um, was on the same level as uh, Kafir, or is that you know someone who has never been part of Islam who now believes something that whatever sect you are you think is Kafir, or or just outsiders? No, there is a there is a huge amount of victims, uh, tears of jihad. Inner Islamic, because it's the pur 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 purification jihad. Of course, uh, if you call yourself a Muslim, but y depending on the country where you live, um, you can live a free life in Austria, calling you a Muslim and li living a secular life. But in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, it, it's, it's, it will be much more difficult. So. Um, Everybody is a kafir who is not submitting to Muhammad and Allah in the whole teachings at the end. I don't know if it responds to your question. Um, maybe, maybe you make the moderation because I don't know who was first. Um, I think the, the
was an uh, article I was reading about Ernst Jünger in the Frankfurt Academic <laughs> in, in 2011, awesome. and it concludes with this quote from him about Hitler. So he canceled this meeting with Hitler, and Jünger is quoted, he said, Da machte er auf mich einen manischen Eindruck, aber auch den Eindruck, den vielleicht Mohammed auf gewisse Siegenherzen gemacht haben kann, als ob da etwas dahinter steckte. So, like, that Hitler gave him a manish, manic impression, as if perhaps the same impression Mohammed made uh, while preaching to the goat herders. Mm -hmm. And my question is, I can't, it's 2024, I can't imagine a newspaper republishing this quote for 13 years on. So my question is, what are the different factors that are contributing to this kind of um, chilling effect in the media, where yeah, even a quote from Jünger, making that kind of more literary comparison, mm -hmm. is unimaginable? I think my colleague will give the answer to this question in your speech. Don't you think so? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, we finished your question with your already. Uh, perhaps some questions uh, then Yeah, some of Tanuka, formerly at Union of Liberty. Um, one of our presidents that was president of the United States between 2008 and 16 uh, said, Islam is a religion of peace and tolerance. We know this from history, from Andalusia, and I know it personally from my years in Indonesia. What would you say to this president? <laughs> yes. I would say that he should study the Islamic texts and he should go into history and connect the Islamic teachings to what happened in history also during the Andalusian age, because if you go a little bit deeper in this time, then you will see that, that there was a huge discrimination of non-Muslims in that time. There is a whole lecture on that. Yeah. Yes, please.
to all the ideologies we know from the 20th century is that you have immediately fractions coming up. The communist system has that, the Nazis have that, uh, totalitarian regime never works because it's against human nature. And I think, and therefore, the illusion that once everybody has the same faith, uh, this will uh, be then a peaceful world, I think is, is an illusion, and the reality uh, checks uh, prove that. Please, uh, you, you, you want to. No, I, I, I think you, you, okay, 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 please. Okay. <laughs> I wonder how we account for the less jealous brands of Islam, like the Ahmadiyyas, the Ismailis, the Sufis, um, who, are, who are in turn uh, belittled by more zealous editions of Islam. I mean, the thing that, the thing that saves us here is the fact that a death in Pakistan is most likely to be a Sunni killing a Shia. Mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest death tolls, and, and it's never, yes. never highlighted. Um, so that, that Sunni-Shia divide, which bespeaks the fanaticism of which you speak, uh, is the thing that's going to save us. Bernhard, kannst du bitte diese Frage beantworten? Well, uh, I don't know what you understand by saving us. Uh, these various uh, instruments, is a grouping um, uh, which is not, by most uh, uh, organizations, is not accepted as Islamic uh, followers. Um, for instance, when the, the bomb threats in uh, Colombia has to be Christmas, the Ahmadiyya made a demonstration by saying, we are separating us, we don't want to anything to do with this school of thinking. But uh, all other Islamic uh, organizations said, they are not uh, Muslims, they are not part of us. So I don't know what you mean by this could save us. <coughs> Once Islam is united, we're in big trouble. But the fact yeah. that it's inherent fanaticism guarantees these fissures in which death tolls are most likely to be among sects than against outside the church. Uh, That's an important the, the, tool, right? The, the we're coming uh, in any minute. Uh, 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 I will explain that where we, where we can find universality of all grades and all shades of Islam. It is possible to have this. Please, sir. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Winston Bay. Moorish American Muslim. Um, I'm glad I came here. Um, went on Eventbrite a month ago. I hail out of New York. Uh, I live in Baltimore. And uh, this is very uh, uh, beautiful for me because I'm always uh, letting the queen of the pen know that, um, you know, in, in the Surah Baqarah, second chapter 130, it says, whoever forsakes the religion of Abraham has made himself a fool. And, and that's like right in the treatment of women in, in uh, the fourth chapter, you know, treat them with kindness and equity. You know, um, I'm so happy I studied Tasawwuf. I'm so happy I'm a student of Sheikh Jalali and Muridi. Um, uh, I'm so grateful for Sufism because there's parts of the Quran where it says that, uh, that Allah, which means God, translation, Allah is closer to, to you than your juggler thing. You know, uh, Jesus said, uh, Esau said, the kingdom of God is within you, you know. So I just want to just thank 
the most high, whatever name, the nameless name, causeless cause, rootless root, faceless face, whatever you call it, um, for being here because I really would like more of women in Islam because um, there's a difference between the culturalism of what country and culture and how countries mix their culturalism with Quran and, and everything else where a lot of the women, um, it has turned into um, a male-dominant, um, misogynistic uh, teaching. You know, so I just wanted to uh, just thanks for being here. But my question is, um, will you be doing something on women's and the rights of women in Islam soon? Yes, we, we have a whole lecture on women, but we have only one hour here. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for the, for the statement, yeah. Thank you very much, it was a very uh, enlightening lecture. Uh, as I, I don't understand Islam at all, it was very revealing to me. As I understand it, the way you described it, the ideology or the theology, or whatever adjective you want to put to it, has been in existence for at least 1500 Yes, am I right or wrong? Yeah, so we... Thank you. No, I'm, wow. no, I'm just, just, a, just a short statement. Our approach is to study the Islamic texts as they are available now. There are other institutes, for example, in Hara, they are going into the early Islam research, and the very foundation of Islam. They have come to other solutions that the, that the, the theology, the ideology was step by step built up during okay. the centuries. I, I have but a question. Yeah. Let's say Islam has been around a long time. Yes. Okay. How would you evaluate the threat in the 21st century versus the threat as it existed earlier, any time period, and what is the threat against? How would you evaluate the threat after 1,500 or 1,000 or 500 years? How would me, as, a, as a, somebody who knows nothing about the subject, realize that communism, that fascism, uh, Trump is wrong, Biden uh, is wrong, that Islam is the threat? Okay, at this time, uh, we would like to pause the questions. We're going to have a five-minute break, so if you'd like to ask some questions to the guests, you can do so in the next room. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much that you are that enduring and uh, are still here. Uh, I thank the Institute for uh, arranging for this afternoon. For me, it is a particular pleasure to be here. Uh, this is a very personal reason. As you have heard, I was posted here as a young diplomat 35 years ago. And for me, it is the first time since I left at Christmas in 1992 that I'm back in Washington. So for me, this stay here 
in your wonderful city is very meaningful. Yeah, uh, may I simply uh, start my part of the lecture by answering your question, uh, is Islam as a religion around for 1,500 years, yes or no? Uh, yes, when we look at the scripts and all uh, uh, the data given in Quran and the Hadiths, yes, uh, we, we know when uh, uh, Muhammad was born, we knew uh, what he did, when he did it. Uh, when we, however, talk to um, researchers on early Islamic history who only base their findings on archaeology and historic research, there is no trace of Muhammad. As one archaeologist said, archaeology is not kind to Islam. There is no, also in third, uh, in, in third literature, there's no reference to somebody uh, uh, like Muhammad. Uh, and also when the big Arabic conquest started uh, under the Umayyad dynasty, there's no reference uh, to be found on a religion called Islam. It is only in the late century, that means about 150 to 200 years after the life of Muhammad, that Islam as a religion was written down and was called Islam. When we leave the scripts, the primary texts, and look at conventional archaeology and historic research. Uh, and that would mean, as a religion, it is, according to uh, uh, conventional research, uh, 200 years younger. So in the late 8th century, Islam as a religion and also the Quran and the Hadiths as texts started to exist. So the first uh, writings were about 150 to 200 years after the presumed life of Muhammad. But we uh, stick to the scripts because that is what is relevant in the world of Islam and not uh, any other findings. Although interesting they might be, political Islam does not take anything else into consideration. Therefore, we stick to the findings of the scripts, not saying that this is the truth, but this is our um, uh, working method for a simple reason. In reality, this is relevant. Yeah, uh, we've heard uh, the early history of Islam. We've heard about the primary texts. And now I should like to take two aspects of what does that mean in today's political life? What does this mean in international relations, in multilateral relations, and, in the, uh, and, and uh, among uh, Islamic countries. Um, one of the, I think, most important recent documents is the so-called Cairo Declaration on Human Rights in Islam, which was released in 1990 by, under the umbrella of the Organization of Islamic, uh, um, at the time it was Islamic Conferences, today it's Islamic Cooperation. Uh, this is, this is very important to understand that uh, the Organization of Islamic uh, uh, Cooperation is the biggest voting bloc in the United Nations. It has 57 members. One member has been temporarily suspended, but you see the red dot in the middle, which is Syria. Um, and these 57 countries have unanimously, because you were asking, is there unanimously, uh, is there a, a, a consensus within Islamic countries, 
have released this uh, uh, Declaration of Human Rights, and we will see that this is a very important uh, declaration of intent uh, and also of a vision uh, the world of Islam has, and this was put forward to the United Nations. And um, um, uh, they are also explaining how this text should be interpreted. What is also important is that the Cairo Declaration is uh, configured in a UN-compatible language, is a rather short document uh, with 25 articles, uh, can be uh, downloaded from the internet in all languages, and is, uh, yeah, has been uh, presented to the United Nations and other organizations like uh, the European Council, like the European Union, and others. And when we look at the, the year 1990, that was exactly the moment when the Cold War stopped, the Iron Curtain fell. That was the moment where it was clear that a new sort of magnetic, political magnetic field in the world was emerging, and that was when these 57 Islamic countries gave their uh, vision, published their vision in consent. So there was unanimity. Yeah. Uh, this is just a, a brief overlook uh, on the, um, uh, the various categories of Islamic uh, countries. Uh, we have uh, countries where Islam is the foundation of the state. That's Afghanistan, Iran, uh, Mauritania, Oman, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. Then we have a category where the Islam is the state religion. Is Algeria, uh, most of the uh, most of the Emirates, etc. And then we have a category where Islam is not specifically declared. That's uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Indonesia, Niger, Sierra Leone, and Syria. And then we have a category where Islam is not state religion. And uh, that is uh, Albania, Azerbaijan, Bangladesh, etc., Kosovo. Uh, and when you look at uh, the countries which are underlined, these are countries who are potential new members of the European Union. Quite uh, interesting because we will see this Cairo Declaration is a, uh, publishes an intent which is totally contrary to all what has been written down in the United Nations and elsewhere in the non-Islamic world. Which dots? Yeah, the dots say uh, that there's a text between the preamble and the text I quote. On the previous slide. On the previous slide, let me see. Oh. The next. No, it's like you have a circle after the words instead of the period. A full circle. For Syria and the UAE, there was N yet one more. Sorry. Uh, no, but I don't understand what dots do you mean. Oh, no, that doesn't mean anything. That is a, yeah, this is just, uh, yeah, no, this is just uh, a formation uh, which, uh, which has been unintentionally. No, that is, that is with, with no meaning. Yeah, and um, what is interesting is um, how does that what we've learned just uh, reflect in a, in a contemporary document? Um, in the preamble it says, reaffirming 
the civilization the historic role of the Islamic Ummah, uh, which Allah made the best community and which gave humanity universal and well-balanced civilization. Um, it is the quest that Islam is universal. Everybody is considered to be part of Islam and is asked to join. Uh, then also uh, one uh, criteria which is interesting that knowledge is not separated from faith. Faith and knowledge go very closely together. You also could say faith is limiting knowledge. That is the reality of this uh, um, um, how formulation. And according uh, to the 57 uh, members of the OIC, humanity is confused because they are not part of Islam or are not unanimously joining uh, Islam or immediately uh, joining Islam. Um, and a dignified life in accordance with Islamic Sharia is also one claim. Now we have to understand what Sharia is. Um, we will come to that later. Yeah. And this article 25 is the last article of the Cairo Declaration. And this gives an authentic interpretation how the uh, Cairo Declaration can be interpreted. The Islamic Sharia is the only source of reference for the explanation or clarification of any of the articles of this declaration. That means there is no other interpretation possible than uh, Sharia. And here is article number one. Human rights, being uh, all humans being from one family whose members are united by the subordination to Allah and descent from Adam. That's what you have also said before. Uh, even in a modern document, the perception is written down that humanity originates from Adam. Adam uh, is uh, uh, considered to be the first Muslim and all descendants therefore also belong to Islam. The true religion is the guarantee for enhancing such dignity along the path to human integrity. All human beings are Allah's subjects. And uh, his subjects and no one has superiority over another except on the basis of piety and good deeds. So everybody is equal, but they are better and lesser uh, 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 believers. Yeah, and now uh, we have to uh, have a closer look to Sharia. Because Sharia is basically, when you look at this document, it, every subject is, uh, is uh, like education, like public life, uh, even um, uh, science and technology. Uh, information, that means media, everything is only admissible within the margins of Sharia. Uh, and Sharia is not a, a few rules which one likes or one doesn't like, it's a system. It is a system which says only uh, laws are permissible which can be derived from uh, the scripts, anything else. Uh, when a, a parliament uh, decides on a law, and this law cannot be 
um, put into any relationship with the scripts, then it is, according to this declaration, not valid, which means democracy as we know it is not possible under this framework. There's no freedom of religion. In Sharia, there's no freedom of speech. There's no freedom of thought or art, no freedom of the press, no equality of people before the law, because you have uh, men and women are not equal before the law, and believers and non-believers are not equal before the law. Yeah, suppression of people of different beliefs. You've heard the, the, the system of dimis, which um, clerics um, continuously underscore that this is still valid. Uh, and discrimination of homosexual, well, that is, is well known. Yeah, and then the big instrument, which is uh, the opponent of the Cairo Declaration, is, of course, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, uh, released by the United Nations, or under the umbrella of the United Nations in 1948. And right at this moment, the delegation of Saudi Arabia in 1948 um, deposited uh, a reservation by saying uh, two articles are definitely unacceptable, that everyone has the right to change his or her religion or belief, and equal marriage rights, and in particular to have uh, a free choice of marital partners. And then in 1982, uh, Iran uh, did something similar. Why 1982? Because um, uh, the Shah of Iran uh, was ousted in 1979, and his approach was he would go beyond the Islamic tradition. He would also refer to the pre-Islamic Zoroastrian culture Iran had in order, yes, in order also to underscore a regional um, uh, importance which goes beyond Islam. And therefore, the Shah did not oppose the Universal Declaration. But the mullahs, once they were in power, uh, very much did so. Yeah. Uh, now, which are the articles uh, of the Universal Declaration uh, which are in conflict with political Islam? The right to equality, the freedom from discrimination, the freedom from slavery, the freedom from torture and degrading treatment, the right to equality before the law, the right to marriage and family, freedom of belief and religion, freedom of opinion and information, right of peaceful assembly and association, right to participate in government and free elections, right to desirable work and join trade unions, and the right to education. Because all these chapters are mentioned in the Cairo Declaration, but in the final sentence it always says, only within uh, uh, the framework of Sharia. Now, uh, in 1990, the Cairo Declaration was released under the umbrella of uh, the OIC, but in 2000, uh, the members uh, fully uh, and officially supported the Cairo Declaration, and by then was signed by 45 out of 57 members. Yeah, the Cairo Declaration is considered to be the Islamic society, or the, the, the Declaration considers the Islamic society as the representative of God on earth, thus promoting Islam as the only true religion. Human rights are given by Allah, have universal and eternal validity, and nobody can change them.
the Universal Declaration uh, of Human Rights 1948 is not correct and it is not based on Islamic religion, the true and only religion sent by God's last prophet. Therefore, we, have the, the there we see the nature of Sharia. Sharia uh, is a legal system, is a legal approach which says only laws which are directly deriving from the scripts can be accepted. And uh, purely uh, laws designed by human beings are not uh, accepted for an Islamic society. Islam and Sharia are the sole sources of human rights, and Islamic society is the best guard of them. All the rights and freedoms stipulated by the Cairo Declaration are subject to Islamic Sharia. The Islamic Sharia is the only source of reference for the explanation or clarification of any of the articles of the Cairo Declaration. Um, when we look at that, um, then we can't help it than uh, to call this an um, indisputable quest for global power, and it is the blueprint for a Sharia-censored uh, society. Needless to say that this is entirely contrary to all uh, what we uh, have agreed within the United Nations and in, in almost all non-Islamic uh, countries. Yeah, the arguments uh, of political Islam in favor of ad adopting the Cairo Declaration. Mankind is united to form the Ummah. Mankind is united to form the Ummah and should be submitted to Allah. This term submitted is already something where we feel quite uncomfortable. Uh, the guarantor of human rights is true faith. Women do not have the same rights and obligations as men. Education should be in line with Sharia as the future direction for society. Islam is presented as a beneficial for mankind and the state should guarantee education about Islam. Islam is the unspoiled religion. Science, literature, arts, technology should be in line with Sharia. I mean, this puts uh, 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 an incredible limitation to uh, a development of a society. All criminal acts should be judged by Sharia law. Freedom of expression is limited by Sharia any information should be used in accordance with Sharia. This is a very uh, clear language which we rarely find in uh, current documents. And now, what was the reaction, for instance, of the, uh, the Council of Europe? Um, uh, the Parliamentary Assembly um, evaluated the uh, Cairo Declaration when it was uh, presented um, and came to the conclusion the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion may not aim at the destruction of other European conventions, rights, or freedoms. Separation of state and religion, this principle should continue to be uh, respected. Uh, the 1990 Cairo Declaration on Human Rights in Islam is based on Sharia law. Sharia law is applied in several Council of Europe members states or parts thereof. I mean, that was uh, a finding of the Council of Europe uh, that, despite the fact that it is totally incompatible 
uh, the reality showed that in two member states, the, the UK and Greece, informal Sharia councils were in use and uh, uh, acted as judiciary. Um, and that was criticized by the Council of Europe. Uh, I don't know about the UK, but in Greece, these uh, Sharia councils are in some parts still uh, in place. Yeah, the Parliamentary Assembly further said that uh, uh, these various Islamic declarations on human rights adopted since the 80s um, have failed to reconcile Islam with universal human rights. That seems to be quite a, fir a firm statement, um, but the, uh, the Organization of Islamic uh, Cooperation did not stop. They, to this day, are very much committed to apply and to materialize uh, the ideas of their declaration. And now the question is uh, where precisely is Sharia uh, incompatible with democratic societies? The institution of Sharia law and the theocratic regime are incompatible with the requirements of a democratic society. Where human rights are concerned, there is no room uh, for religious or cultural exceptions. Uh, the Greek authorities still do not abolish the application of Sharia law in Trace, which is uh, eastern Greece bordering to, to Turkey. Judicial activities of Sharia Council in the United Kingdom, the ruling of the Sharia Councils clearly discriminate against women in divorce and inheritance cases. Because that is also something, if you look when uh, in a country um, Islamic parties gain power, they aim uh, to achieve three things. They want to change the family law, the inheritance law, and they want to establish um, a blasphemy prohibition. But we will come to that uh, later. <clears throat> Informal Islamic courts may also exist in other Europe, uh, Council of Europe member countries. Uh, <coughs> you must not forget that the Council of Europe has many more members than the European Union. It goes far beyond. There are also countries um, like Azerbaijan, uh, even Russia. Uh, Russia, by the way, has been, has been expelled uh, on the 24th of February um, uh, 2022. Uh, but most of the Caucasus, Caucasus states and of course also uh, countries like Ukraine, who are not members of the European Union, are part of the Council of Europe. So is, for instance, also Turkey. Yeah, this is the end uh, as to the um, Cairo Declaration. And we will continue with um, how can we measure that the ideas of the uh, Cairo Declarations are implemented despite the fact that it was rejected by the United Nations and also other important uh, institutions and organizations. And I take only one criteria out, yeah, and that is Islamophobia. Uh, Islamophobia is uh, uh, initially uh, simply uh, blasphemy. It's another term. And it was in March uh, 22 
that the United Nations adopted a resolution to establish a, a day to combat Islamophobia. This was a, a big surprise because um, within the United Nations, within the community of, of international um, uh, legal experts, um, Islamophobia was never, was never defined what it is. Uh, and uh, um, if you just take the term, phobia is an unreasonable uh, pathological fear. Um, when you look at um, the translation in, for instance, German, uh, um, uh, in the uh, publications of German Islamic uh, organizations, they immediately translate it with uh, Islam hostility, uh, which is something totally different. Um, and how did this term Islamophobia uh, uh, enter the vocabulary of the United Nations? Um, Advance a bit further, yeah. Yeah, in 1998, uh, the OIC has replaced the term blasphemy with Islamophobia to make the accusation more acceptable to Western governments. Because blasphemy is a medieval term where everybody says it's appalling, it's not accepted. So the organization said, let's find another term and they were very successful because when we look around, everybody is accusing anybody of, of, of Islamophobia. And this is a term which, because of this uh, UN resolution, has entered the vocabulary of the United Nations uh, without much of a notice. So they were very successful simply to change the etiquette for their uh, uh, quest to have a, a blasphemy prohibition entering into uh, Western uh, legal um, systems. Yeah, and then when we take uh, the relevant parts of the text of this uh, UN resolution, uh, which was presented by Pakistan and in the name of the OIC, um, yeah. Islamophobia has emerged as a new form of racism with an added gender aspect as girls and women are targeted <clears throat> due to their dress and the notion that they are oppressed. This shows very well what we have heard. Um, not to accept Islam is not something which is your choice. But if that is done, that is uh, a, a reason to be attacked. And this attack is not an attack, but seen as a defense of Islam. And you know, one of the um, the representatives of an Islamic organization in Europe said to take away the compulsory wearing of uh, the headscarf is taking away the right of the women to develop as fully Muslim women. I mean, this shows the mindset which is behind uh, the spreading of Islam, what is understood under this uh, term. And uh, briefly to the historic run-up until this declaration was, uh, was adopted. Uh, the OIC declared in 2012, uh, which means it's about 20 years after the release of the Cairo Declaration, um, that uh, and the Cairo Declaration was of all, by all non-Islamic uh, institutions rejected. They decided uh, that they would not try again to ask the United Nations for support for a 
a ban on religious insult, but called on states to enforce hate speech laws related to Islam. So they're not approaching the plenary of the United Nations, but they try through their members to manipulate individual countries uh, to establish and to implement as much as possible of the Cairo Declaration. And then also something which is very important and for us um, um, difficult to understand that the non-believers must stay out of discussions about Islam, which is quite unusual because everybody else would like to convince by spreading the teachings. No, with Islam it's different. You should first convert and then you're confronted with the teaching. Since its founding, the OIC has attempted to enforce the doctrine of blasphemy in all countries. Yeah, that is pretty obvious. But blasphemy is not called blasphemy anymore, but Islamophobia. Any speech or statement that insults Sharia authorities is punishable as blasphemy or slander. I mean, that is, is very important to understand uh, why this blasphemy prohibition is so important for political Islam is because that is the instrument to remove and silence political critics and opponents. Uh, these laws um, um, are very vaguely defined. What is, uh, what is an insult? And here it says clearly, anything which might insult an Islamic institution uh, is punishable. And there was a very, uh, a very uh, prominent case in Indonesia, 2016, there was a uh, a member of the Chinese minority who was a very promising candidate uh, for the election as, as governor for Jakarta. And during the election campaign, he was all of a sudden um, confronted with a, uh, with a blasphemy accusation. And this was so absurd that even renowned uh, clerics declared this was not permissible to um, raise any charges against him. But it was so politicized that uh, uh, the clerics were not listened at. Uh, he was put uh, uh, for trial, was uh, sentenced, uh, and when you are sentenced, and that's always, when you have a blasphemy prohibition and you are sentenced under that, there's always a, a, pro, a provision there that you are not allowed anymore to run or hold public office. And that's exactly the instrument to remove your political opponents. And that is, makes it so important for political Islam to come with this uh, Islamophobia. And also, as we could see in the, uh, in the introduction of the Pakistani representative, he said, it's, Islamophobia is a new form of racism. Because there are um, prohibitions and sentences in every Western, every non-Islamic uh, society against racism. And if you can link Islamophobia to racism, you don't need any, any blasphemy prohibition anymore. Then you simply uh, equal uh, blasphemy, Islamophobia with racism, and there you are. Um, so one can clearly say there is a consensus among the 57 countries when it comes to a strategy vis-a-vis -vis the non-believers vis-a-vis non-Islamic countries. So there is consensus when it comes to that point. Yeah, and then briefly, uh, how were, were the reactions uh, by the European Union? You, of course, are a member of the European Union, we are very much concerned how did our institution react to that? Because 
this um, blasphemy prohibition was always rejected, and all of a sudden uh, the General Assembly uh, uh, adopts such a resolution without any debate. Um, and uh, France at the time was president of the European Union and gave a vote uh, explanation, you know, in, in, in a, in a um, uh, uh, adoption process in the United Nations. You can either vote for a resolution, you can vote against it, you can abstain, and you can vote plus an explanation. You can as a, uh, explain your uh, voting, um, but that's a very sort of uh, a low signal of opposition. And France explained, Islamophobia has no agreed definition in international law. France supports the protection of all religions and beliefs. However, the creation of an international day does not respond to uh, concerns to fight against all forms of discrimination. Um, all that would mean one should vote against it. And further, this delegation had proposed a text that endorsed the freedom of religion and belief. He, that's the representative of France, said, voicing his regret that none of those proposals were taken into account. All discrimination should be condemned with equal condemnation and vigor. Although the proposal had not been considered, his delegation decided not to oppose the resolution's adoption, he said. The only reason why one uh, voted for it was not because one agrees, but one simply doesn't want to disturb uh, the consent. So I think this is uh, quite a change of voting behavior in such an important case. And then uh, also the European Commission, who is not a member of uh, the United Nations, but has observer status and can therefore also uh, give a declaration. The European Commission declared, uh, stressing that the bloc is strongly opposed to all forms of hostility and violence. However, he noted his concern with, with the approach of singling out one religion. That is also very important. Single out one religion does not uh, give equality uh, to, to, uh, to various uh, faiths. This approach risks undermining the universal approach of the United Nations. There should be a right to, to debate and criticize religions. That's a very important statement. And uh, I think the rest of you would have wished that this would have been put forward more prominently. So thank you very much for enduring. And uh, please, we are open for debate. Please. Preston. Thank you, thank, thank, thank you very much. So it occurs to occurs to me that uh, this um, this attack, the the characterization of what a particular group just calls blasphemy, which they can make it up as to anything they wish, as insulting Islam, etc., is right in line with the same type of thing that happened during the terror of the French Revolution when it was adequate to say, Jacques, and you would lose your head. Um, I've, heard it's, I've, I've heard that all future revolutions will take on that, that aspect of the French Revolution and the terror and Cambodianization 
Do, do you think there is a, a, a tendency, a movement to, uh, to start a great, great world war of Islam against the rest of us? Well, I think then. Well, one should never worry about uh, anything because we live in, in dangerous times. But I think if we look what happens now, I mean, all the emotional uh, uh, upheavals uh, around Gaza would have been such a moment. But there's very little consensus among the Islamic countries to uh, to have a concerted efforts to go. Iran steps back, Saudi Arabia says the Abrahamic Accords are still on the table. Uh, right now, I can't see that. But to say there's nothing to worry about in the future, no, no other country, uh, I, I, I would very much uh, worry about that. Yes, please. A lot of semantics. Um, when you see the list of things you put under is what it is that allows freedom or religion. In America, if your rights come from your creator, you're almost saying the same thing. But it's then separated, the government isn't given the power to be that. So there's a lot of semantics where it's, if you're saying freedom or religion, it's the inescapable, it's the uh, God is the light. So if it's, it's Sharia, the sense of justice where you're in the light of the Lord, the all-powerful, all all-knowing, and it's not the body of people making judgment on what's written. So it's actually a much higher standing akin to your rights are from your creator. Then also, you know, in, the, in the Constitution, you're talking about it's submitted to, under Allah. Our Constitution is subscribed, done, in the year of our Lord, which is in the Christian calendar. So, there's a lot... I, I, yeah, I'm I know what, you, what, you, what you mean. Um, we are not really so much into comparing our religions, but there can be one thing uh, said because that there Islam sticks out. Uh, if you go through the scripts, um, Allah rules into every detail of the human being. Even well, what you, like even if you, what, what you do in bed, etc. So there is hardly any space uh, of maneuver and, and decision. Whereas when we look at Christianity, God gives you the mandate to, to shape your life to your, to your liking. Yes, there are the commandments and there are things to observe. But other than that, uh, it, other religions give you a full spectrum of, uh, of liberty of action, which uh, Islam denies explicitly. And in the Cairo Declaration, it really says that uh, every second paragraph mentions the Sharia as a limitation. Yeah. 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 Now, yeah, I mean, you have to, to make the reality check uh, in existing uh, Islamic societies today. There you can see uh, what sort of margin of interpretation uh, you have today. Uh, sorry, there was in behind. Mr. Ambassador, you and your yep. colleague have made uh, overwhelming cases that political Islam is incompatible with the values of Europe, America in general. This political Islam that seeks to, to basically remake societal values. Uh, the case you make is overwhelming. We've seen that, uh, the struggles in Europe. My question to you is more of a pragmatic question. Where does this leave political decision makers in Europe? your advice for Americans as well, because what you put up from the French delegation and the General Assembly, the response of the European Commission, and this, is, this stuff that is so indecisive that it leaves the initiative in the hands of political Islam that would remake our, our societies. Yeah, I mean, um, if you ask me what should be done 
the influence of Islam and the concessions which are given to Islam and not to other religions. That has to stop. Um, um, uh, you're entirely right. There's indecisiveness and there is a shyness to criticize uh, a religion. Um, at least something which is still considered to be a religion. But at the other hand, if we look at the Organization of Islamic uh, uh, Cooperation, these are governments. Erdogan is government. Um, Saudi Arabia is government. The Mullah's government. There's, there's no religion. It's about ruling. And the uh, sort of um, all combining mission statement of the various grades and shades of uh, Muslim Brotherhood is spreading of Islam until it rules the world. And I think that together discredits uh, Islam as a religion. It's a form of governance. It's the quest for global indisputable power. Yeah? Hi. Uh, so, um, there, uh, I'm personally a, a victim of persecution by so-called, you know, uh, maybe better term is, is, a, is a Islamist um, aggression. Um, and, uh, and I stand here as a Muslim who sees no difference between forcing uh, a woman to wear something or not to wear something. And uh, so, you know, just to give you uh, a thought here, um, the, the presentations sit on lack of nuance that um, fails to clarify the, the rather uh, recent and uh, uh, 20th century um, um, foundations of political Islam. So there is a lot of blending of political Islam with Islam. There is a lot of going back and forth. Political Islam is a child of post-1980 and post-communism essential. And also, if in a larger period, it's a child of uh, post-World War dynamics. These governments that assert these um, you know, uh, assertively worded documents are doing this because they are all based on, uh, mostly based on regimes that take Islam as a regime and citizenship marker. So we are talking about regime protection efforts that play into the hands of an ideology. And that's okay, but if you uh, generalize this and say Islam itself is, a, is, a, is an endless quest for power, then you are indirectly uh, and inadvertently playing into the hands of political Islamists who are absolutists and who say this is the way we interpret it and uh, this is the way it should be because they believe sovereignty is an unflexible concept. It comes from God, whereas there are other Muslims who believe a two-layer of sovereignty, cosmic sovereignty and worldly sovereignty, which is delegated to the humankind. And 
we are entitled to use it in the way we desire. <coughs> so there are these competing um, approaches among Muslims. Um, and uh, and um, so there is this risk of um, disregarding one effort while associating the entire Islamic history, experience, and society with, with one. The clash is between absolutism and self-reflexivity. That's, um, as a Muslim, that's my testimony and my, my humble uh, reflection on that. And, uh, and, uh, and in this context, I, you know, during the previous presentation, I had a sense that uh, the, the dialogue efforts were portrayed as, as almost cosmetic efforts. Um, I, I have to object that. Um, Muslims, some Muslims, are butchering some non-Muslims in various corners of the world. And uh, unfortunately, this is not an illusion. This is happening right now. And other Muslims are generally involved in a set of dialogue work across the globe, which is not cosmetic, which is not reactionary, which is solidly grounded in their interpretation of Islam, and that's not an illusion either. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what, what you said is, is quite important. Um, when we come back to the term political Islam, Political Islam, uh, in particular when we look at the European current experience, are measures uh, to uh, put, um, to give Islam political authority in non-Muslim societies. That's what we experience. There is hardly a single Islamic organization in Europe which is not linked to the countries, the members of the OIC, uh, who is not supported by them and does not implement their policies. So the dialogue happens with these organizations. And but you see, they come and want to have concessions at the expense of everybody else. When you bring them together, we would like to talk about new interpretations of Islam which are somehow compatible with living together with other uh, beliefs. Um, and uh, to talk about uh, rights of women to shape them, that it is acceptable for every faith. But the organizations came, came saying, no, we don't want to have that. We want to have more money for social, uh, uh, for social contributions for our uh, uh, followers. And we want to have more money for mosques to build up our infrastructure, for instance. So you can see this dialogue uh, is aiming to increase political influence and not to solve uh, the issue at, uh, at the roots. Yes. Of course, in Islamic countries, when you look at the people who are suffering, I mean, I'm a, a child of the Cold War. My first posting was in Poland during martial law. Everybody was talking about the government and how horrible this is, etc. And then I came to Algeria, an Islamic country, in 98, which was a very hard period, and the same rhetoric. Everything was only about the government because conditions were so harsh. And so uh, uh, I see the parallel of totalitarian rule. And I think we have to accept that uh, in most Islamic countries, in particular when we look at, at Iran, uh, uh, also at Pakistan, uh, uh, certainly Afghanistan, and 
and others uh, that this is a, a quest for a totalitarian rule. And these countries are supporting the relevant institutions of Islam in Europe. That is the dilemma. There is no relevant structure, no relevant organization uh, which uh, uh, provides a different perspective. And if you look at Islam um, and reform of Islam, the so-called modernists appeared the first time around the 1850s in view of the overwhelming power and superiority of the colonial powers. There, was, there started a debate in many Islamic countries in the Middle East how to reshape the society to make it more compatible and more and stronger against the colonial powers. And if you take that process, and this process is going on, this is not over, and you make a screenshot now, where is this process now? Where are institutions and movements which were not here, let's say, 50 or 60 years ago? You come up with Hezbollah, with Hamas, with Islamic State, with Muslim Brotherhood, with Al-Qaeda, and a failed Kemalism. The only really important uh, reform movement was, by, was initiated by Kemal Atatürk, and Erdogan has stopped it and ended it. And that is the sad story, because again, this reform movement was not a theological movement. It was, uh, was initiated by a government or by a ruler. So wherever you come to important developments, it's always about governance, it's always about uh, rulers, and it's about uh, governments and governance. So uh, there is, you know, we had uh, and, uh, in Indonesia, it was just before 9-11. Um, the, the Francophonie had an event organized on uh, Islam and democracy. And there was the, the Grand Mufti of Marseille who gave the keynote address to, to, to start this event. And he said that the dilemma of Islam today is its theological stagnation and its politicization. This, I think, is a very, a very uh, uh, statement to the point. Uh, and to separate the faith from the quest of power, I can't see any, any structure where I could say, that's what we should support. These are partners. Uh, I can't see that. I mean, perhaps you can help me uh, and help us, uh, but I can't see it right now. It would be highly desirable, but I can't see it. Yeah. I think you want it. The way forward is no, because I think we have to be more conscious and have to contain it where it is inappropriate to make concessions which are against what is important to us, what is in our constitutions, what we have agreed within the United Nations. We make concessions beyond, and, uh, and that uh, is, is, has an influence on all, all parts of society, in particular in Europe where we feel it. Um, yeah? Again, I'm so excited to be yeah. here, because uh, I, I have lectures in Baltimore, in libraries, uh, uh, pretty much on this whole intellectual level. This reminds me of Hadith that says uh, three generations after me will no longer be of me. 
Um, always had this question, why would Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his last uh, uh, khutbah, his last lecture, he said that uh, there's no white over black, no black over white, no Arab over non-Arab, no non-Arab over Arab. And, you know, um, why would a man say that unless it was going on back then? So, uh, you know, statements like that someone would make unless that activity was happening back then, you know. And then I, the, the, the word semantics, you know, and, and uh, I was, the word spelling, you know, when you cast a spell, you know, from blasphemy to Islamophobia, um, convincing people to follow in this direction, you know, um, it's, it just amazes me, you know, how you and, and your sister just, um, I look back and I say to myself, okay, so what's the need of a Mahdi? You know, they talk about the coming of a Mahdi, you know, and the jab and all of these things in, in Islamic uh, folklore, or shall we say, but there, there, there is a patriarchal psychology that I'm looking at. And um, I think it's trauma bonding. You know, I, I, you know, I'm looking at how it's like an evolution of a virus, you know, from one extreme to another, from country to country. <laughs> and I think hadiths were written 70 or 100 years after Prophet Muhammad died. And the Sharia, I mean, even the Quran says, I think it's the 22nd chapter or 33rd chapter, that Allah appointed to every nation its own act of worship. And to every nation, they have their own way of worshiping. Um, the second chapter, 62, it says, we believe in Allah. It says, whoever believes in Allah, you know, whether you're Jew, Christian, or Sabian, whoever believes in Allah on the last day, shall have their reward with their Lord, and there's no fear upon them, neither shall they grieve. Now, this is Quran. You know. But there are, you, you know, there are, there are enough, enough verses who say exactly the yes, opposite. So, yeah. so I'm, you know, as we're speaking on political Islam, yeah. I'm looking at how far astray from the, the script a lot of these uh, trauma-bonding leaders are, are going, because it seems like they're trauma-bonding. So my question is, how can I explain to a neophyte the difference between political Islam and the essence of what Islam really is? Someone that's branded. The political Islam is uh, an Islam which wants to govern and to rule. And that is predominantly the expression of all Islamic organizations, Islamic countries. It's about ruling. What the essence is of, uh, of the Islam theologically, we're not getting into that. Here we are, uh, because uh, I'm a kafir. I, I'm, uh, I, I, want to, I want to look at that which has a political impact and uh, what you believe uh, should be yours. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Uh, for the last 20 or so years, uh, there's been an attempt to silence critics of Islam in Europe. 
list is very long. It starts with Rushdie, I am here, Sidali, mm -hmm. Van Gogh, uh, and until uh, uh, Oriana Palacci was one of the first ones. And these people are threatened with prosecution, arrest, fines, and uh, and and of course uh, death. You know, in, in the case of Hengel. Uh what is the situation today? Has there been any change in the attitudes? When somebody uh, is criticizing Islam, is he sus susceptible to being arrested for blasphemy? And what is the consensus in Europe today? Yeah, there is an incredible shyness, and there's still a, a mainstream who believes um, they are blaming their own peers and their own kin of Islamophobia. You know, we had a professor who is, has an Iranian father and a German mother, and he had a tenure um, um, on Islamic, right, uh, Islamic law and ethics in Vienna. And when he was appointed and started his tenure, he was immediately attacked by Islamic organizations because he came from uh, regular, he came from Harvard and other renowned uh, academic institutions. That was his background. And he did not come from the faith, although he was born as a Muslim, had a childhood as a Muslim, but then <clears throat> his parents moved to Germany and he took a different path. And uh, I asked him, I met him, I asked him, why, who are these people who are attacking you? And, uh, and he said, it's the Muslim Brotherhood does not uh, give me sleepless nights. It is the white, liberal, green person. So it's the own, uh, uh, that is currently, I mean, um, Muslims who are critical, they are endangered by uh, Islamic organizations. Uh, there are many who cannot live without uh, 724 uh, personal protection. I mean, uh, that's, that's uh, quite enormous. And still, there is not really a wake-up call. There hasn't been a wake-up call where you could say the mood is changing. But Macron, David Cameron, they all said it's not only about terrorism, it is about Islam getting into our, political Islam getting into our societies on a legal basis. Please? I said, uh, I guess we'll go more ahead. I just had more of a uh, general question. What's been happening with Israel and Gaza that's been yeah. happening for decades? Why is it now that all these other countries are, are getting involved when it seems like they've provided no aid, ignored Palestine, and it's just opportunism. Like, I'm, I'm kind of confused why the rebels in Yemen now are siding with Palestine when they had never, you know, donated a rocket or a gun to them five years ago. Yeah. Uh, well, they have to say, this is not our subject. So, Whatever I say is my personal opinion and has nothing to say with the group I'm representing and, and uh, the fellow academians I work together. Because we are not getting into the Middle East conflict and presenting uh, recipes uh, for a peace order. We, we are entirely um, uh, looking at the scripts and what is the result. 
uh, and the impact today. But I can give you personally uh, an opinion because uh, it is predominantly about uh, the hegemony in the Middle East. I mean, when you look at Iran, who is so hostile against Israel, it has no relevance. What Israel does or doesn't do has no relevance to, uh, to Iran. But if what Iran wants, it wants to be the dominating power in the Middle East, in particularly versus Saudi Arabia. If they say, we want to be dominated and, and uh, Saudi Arabia has to be uh, submissive to us, then the whole uh, Arabic world will be against, uh, against Iran. So therefore, they talk about Israel, but mean um, hegemon. And therefore, the Houthis all of a sudden do something which uh, doesn't make any sense for their lives. Uh, and that also applies to the relationship Israel with now uh, getting more and more agreements with uh, Gulf states and with, uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia. And um, Hamas is all of a sudden um, has the feeling that the, the supporters run away. And so they had to do something. Um, yeah, it's about uh, the, the concert of powers in the Middle East and the Palestinians. I mean, I mean imagine this disaster and Egypt doesn't even open the borders to, to help anybody. It doesn't even, it doesn't even permit to enter relief transport uh, into there. Jordania declares if there's one Palestinian coming, this is a, a case of war for us. I mean, so you can see that there's a lot uh, else uh, in the play. Um, and also on terminology, you said you're a Catholic, um, which is a caricaturized definition of the term that was used by the absolutist political Islamic enemy. This is a contested term. There are people who use this caricaturized version equating being not being a Muslim with being Catholic. But there is also a more nuanced definition that says a person who doesn't believe is not a Catholic. Whereas a person or an organized effort who is deliberately investing time, energy, power into keeping people away from religious faith and freedom is caught. So um, I don't think you have such an agenda, Your Excellency, of preventing people enjoying their uh, religious beliefs. No, so, by no means. As so, long as they leave me alone. That's yeah, very important. Yeah. yeah. So which means, Again, that you are not a cover, I invite you to avoid using those caricaturized versions of terms. But they're in the scripts. They're, they're in the primary texts. They're in the primary texts. Yeah. That's which, what we, which is an yeah. indirect form of support the Islamist uh, end. Uh, same goes for Sharia. There are those reductionist definitions of it. And there are Muslims who say, no, Sharia in Washington, D.C. is the American Constitution. Like yeah, but these are individuals, and they are in great number, but they have no voice. Because other organizations, we can see that in Europe, if anybody comes up with a different version, then the person has to be under protection. Uh, we, there is no relevant movement which sees things differently. Kemal Atatürk, he 
tried to stop political Islam. He tried to move Islam out of government and just keep it to the spiritual uh, domain. And thanks to President Erdogan, this is over. I am Kurdish. Please yeah. don't get me started on Kemal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to add that's why we, it's so important that we do not point to the individuals and to the people. And we could not turn to those who want inside Islam to do the modern, to, to modernize the Islamic text because we would endanger them tremendously. So in, in Europe, if you would. Um, support them. As a, we, we know some of them. And if you go to lectures, there's 20, 24 hours with, with bodyguards. So um, we studied the primarily Islamic texts from the non-Muslim perspective of view, so from the non-Islamic perspective. And that's why, of course, for you or for others, we are not kafirs. but if we study the texts for Allah and for Muhammad, there are more than 340 descriptions in the Quran. So that's what we do. And maybe we um, just leave it here. And thank you so much for the debate. It's, it's, it's so important to open up the debate and to go into that. And please go in the, in the self-study and, and do your... Nobody has to believe us, prove everything what we said, go in the primary texts, and yes, and keep on dealing with this subject because it's important for everybody.